Welcome back to Parkside Green's Fall Bible Study. Pastor Steve here, uh, hoping that you enjoyed the first week with your small group as much as I did. Uh, we've kind of had our introductions now, and we are ready to move into our actual study of 1 Kings, starting with chapter 1. And it's all about the question of succession. The question of succession. Who would succeed or follow David as king? Right? God had given David an impressive kingdom to pass on, but... To whom? David's family was complicated, really complicated. They had, he had over a half dozen wives. He had some 18 or so sons. And yes, God had promised David that his family would rule over Israel, and one of his sons would build a temple for them to worship the Lord. But which son would it be? Well, at some point in time, we read in 1 Chronicles 22, 9 and 10, check that out, 1 Chronicles 22, 9 and 10, that the Lord told David that Solomon would be the chosen son. The Lord promised to give peace and quiet to Israel in Solomon's days, and Solomon would build a house for the Lord's name. But while David had, the Lord had told David that Solomon was to succeed him, David apparently hadn't made this news public to others, though he shared it maybe privately with uh, Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. So as David advances in years, the question of succession rises to the forefront. Language of sitting on the throne and ruling is really peppered throughout the chapter. Maybe you circled it and found it in your observations. Who will succeed David as king? That's the question, and for what it's worth, I found it helpful to organize the chapter under five headings, which could assist you maybe if you're a note taker. First, we see a pampered supplanter in verses 1 to 10. Then we will see a queen intervenes in verses 11 to 21. A prophet stops it in verses 22 to 31. A coronation with elation, verses 32 to 40. And hearing leads to fearing, 41 to 53. A lot of rhyming going on here. It all starts out with a pampered supplanter in verses 1 to 10. The opening verses tell us that King David was old and advanced in years. No matter how many clothes they piled on him or how many covers they put on him, he just could not get warm, maybe especially when he lay down to sleep. So the king's servant suggested that a young woman be found who could wait on the king and serve him and keep him warm, again, especially probably when he's sleeping. Situation is David is old and cold, but he can be warm when he's in her arms. So the beautiful young lady, Abishag the Shunammite, was brought to David to attend to him, but there was no sexual relationship between them, we are told. She was simply a beauty who did her duty. She served the king, and that included being like a, like a human electric blanket for him at night. With David now older and perhaps weaker, his fourth son, Adonijah, decides it's time to exalt himself as king by putting together a retinue of chariots and horsemen and 50 men to parade before him. You notice what's going on with Adonijah? He's acting like a king, though God has not chosen him to be king. And then verse 6 gives us some key facts about Adonijah. His father David had never at any time displeased his son Adonijah by questioning why Adonijah did what he did. We get the impression while David had been a mighty warrior and a skilled musician and a great poet 
and a beloved king, he had been a lax and indulgent father who failed to discipline Adonijah. Examples of David failing to hold his sons accountable for their actions are found back in 2 Samuel 13 and 14, if you want to check them out. And we also find that like Saul, the first king, and Absalom before him, Adonijah was strikingly handsome. And he was apparently David's oldest living son, so he seemed like the obvious choice, right? But good looks and parental indulgence rarely build character or wisdom. And in reality, Adonijah was a pampered supplanter who tried to usurp David's right to name his own successor, let alone God to guide the process. So unlike his father David, who waited on God's timing for him to ascend the throne. Do you remember that long decade under crazy Saul? Unlike David, Adonijah did not wait for the king to die. He couldn't wait for his dad to die. Instead, he took it into his own hands. He put himself forward on his timetable. Besides all the pomp and circumstance surrounding the chariots and horsemen and men parading before him, Adonijah also conferred with those from David's inner circle who he thought might support him. The military leader Joab, the priest Abiathar, sided with Adonijah. But the military leader Benaiah and the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan and David's mighty men and others would not support this pampered supplanter. There was a split cabinet on the question of succession. So, when Adonijah held a big sacrifice just south of Jerusalem by the spring in Rogel, he did not invite Benaiah, Nathan, David's mighty men, or his brother Solomon, who appeared to be his chief competitor for the throne. Adonijah invited only those who he knew were already with him, or he thought maybe he could persuade to be with him. And at his big feast, the pampered supplanter invited only select guests, including all the king's other brothers who presumably could relinquish their right to the throne on the spot at the big party. <laughs> well, that brings us to our second section, verses 11 to 21, where a queen intervenes. It starts when Nathan the prophet informs Bathsheba, who's Solomon's mother, that Adonijah has become king, and David doesn't even know it. So to save her own life and the life of her son Solomon, Nathan advises Bathsheba to immediately go to David and remind him he swore to her that Solomon would follow him as king. And then Nathan would plan to arrive and confirm what Bathsheba was saying, so they were kind of colluding together as they made this plan. Bathsheba follows this tactful counsel by humbly approaching King David with homage and a bow, when David inquires what she wants, she respectfully addresses David as my Lord, and she reminds him how he had sworn by the Lord that her son Solomon would be the next king of Israel. You remember how Solomon was born to Bathsheba after her first baby had died in infancy? Well, now she's informing David that Adonijah has engaged in a kind of a self-coronation. He's doing a huge sacrifice, she tells him everyone on the VIP list who's at the party, and she notes that Solomon was left off the list. Everyone's looking to David to pronounce his successor, and if David dies without saying anything, 
it will likely mean that Bathsheba and Solomon will be on the rival or offender list, which might turn out to be a hit list. I mean, they would be at risk. Then we move from a queen intervenes to a prophet stops it in verses 22 to 31. Just as they had scripted, while Bathsheba still speaking to King David, the prophet Nathan came in and was announced to the king. Nathan the prophet's here. Just like Bathsheba, he shows humility and respect by bowing with his face to the ground, addresses David as, my lord, the king. You're the king here, David. And he asks a pointed question of David. Have you named Adonijah as your successor? Because he's putting on a feast for all your sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest, and they're all feasting and they're all proclaiming, Long live King Adonijah. But he left Benaiah and Zadok and Solomon and me, Nathan says, off the guest list. So have you named Adonijah as your chosen successor without telling us? Have, have you kept us in the dark about this? David's heard enough at this point. He's convinced. He calls for Bathsheba to re-enter his presence. Apparently, he'd step back temporarily. And he reiterates his promise to her that, yes, Solomon will be the next king. And David's going to take care of it today. He's on it, right? Bathsheba expresses her appreciation, her loyalty to David. You know, Adonijah had tried to make himself king, but the Lord used a queen to intervene and a prophet to stop it, God's purposes would prevail. Which brings us to a coronation with elation in verses 32 to 40. David may be getting older and colder, true, but he's still the king of Israel and he is still calling the shots. So he seems reinvigorated now. He swings into action. He convenes his, his loyal cabinet members, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the military leader, Benaiah is especially enthusiastically approving of David's plan. And David orders these three to gather the rest of David's servants together. And then they're going to use five public signs to show that Solomon was the true king. Solomon. Number one, they'd have Solomon ride on David's own mule, his personal mule. That would show he was the favored son. Secondly, at Gihon, they would anoint Solomon as king over Israel. Thirdly, they'd blow the trumpet, announcing something big is happening. And fourth, they would affirm Solomon's authority by saying, Long live King Solomon. And fifth and finally, they would follow Solomon from Gihon back to Jerusalem, and there he would sit on David's throne. Clearly, the approved king, or maybe perhaps even co-regent, in a sense, with his father David as he lived. Well, in contrast then to Adonijah's kind of private dinner party, Solomon was made king out in the open, right? Then the five signs would leave no doubt that David had appointed Solomon as king. And, and it wins the approval of the people. It's very popular. All the people are shouting, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after Solomon, playing pipes and rejoicing with great joy it is such a noise, such a joyous occasion, that we're told the earth was split by their noise. It was truly a coronation with elation. God was keeping his promises made to David back in 2 Samuel 7. As promised, David does now have a son on the throne, and that son 
will be a blessing as long as he obeys the Lord. Lastly, in our final section, verses 41 to 53, we'll see that hearing leads to fearing. And we'll recall that what's going on down in Enrogel, just a little bit south of Jerusalem, is the pampered supplanter and his select guests are just finishing up their feasting. The party's starting to wind down. Their military leader, Joab, who's with them, he picks up on the sound of the trumpet and he wonders, what's, what's all that uproar in the city of Jerusalem about? What's going on there? And just then, the son of the priest who was with Adonijah came with some unexpected and unwanted news. See, while Adonijah had been busy sort of trying to make himself king, David had been busy actually making Solomon king. And he was supported. The, the, the young man, the informant, tells them by David's inner circle of Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the military leader, as well as what appear to be like David's personal guard or his personal troops of the Cherethites and Pelethites. Uh, you can read about them in 2 Samuel for background. And Jonathan the messenger further reports all the signs of Solomon's kingship. He's riding on David's mule. He's being anointed by the priest and the prophet. He's sitting on the royal throne. There's citywide rejoicing. People are arriving to congratulate him. David is blessing the Lord, of God, the Lord, the God of Israel, for all of it. In just a matter of hours, it seemed that it all turned upside down. Every person that Adonijah had snubbed is now being honored by David and supported by all the people. When the time came that Jonathan had finished giving his report to Adonijah and all of his guests, it was immediately clear to everyone that the one whom David made king was going to prevail over the one who tried to make himself king. So all the pampered supplanters, select guests, trembled because their affiliation with Adonijah could mark them potentially as disloyal rebels to the new regime that was developing under Solomon. The party was over. <laughs> the air was let out of that place and the guests scattered. In fact, Adonijah was so afraid of his half-brother Solomon that he went and took hold of the horns of the altar in the tent. He, he saw it apparently as a place of asylum. You can read about it in Exodus 21, verses 12 to 14. Adonijah hoped that he could find safe refuge in this holy place. And sure enough, Solomon does mercifully declare that as long as Adonijah showed himself a worthy man, there would be no retribution. But if Adonijah showed himself to be wicked in the future, he would die. Though they pried Adonijah's hands from the horns of the altar, he pays homage to Solomon, and Solomon banishes his failed rival to his house. Just stay in your house in humble submission to me. And that's kind of how the first chapter ends. The, the question of succession, which is the major issue here, it's been answered. It wasn't smooth necessarily, but the younger son, Solomon, not the older son, Adonijah, will be the next king of Israel. It's a fascinating story. There's lots of suspense and intrigue, right? Especially the first time reading it through. But how does the true story of 1 Kings chapter 1 relate to the story of our lives? I want you to consider four possible applications that are drawn from different characters in the story. 
I'm sure there are more possible applications that you'll discuss in your small groups. Number one, at work or at home or in the church, are you ever tempted like Adonijah to grab power or, or jostle for position to which God has not called you? Have you ever been tempted to kind of jockey for a position that God hasn't called you to? Secondly, in looking for spiritual leaders, are we ever like Joab and Abiathar, impressed with worldly qualifications rather than godly character? Remember, Joab and Abiathar side with Adonijah. He's the oldest one, he's good looking, and they don't look on the inside for godly character that marks God's leaders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Thirdly, when something's wrong, and it was wrong for Adonijah to usurp the throne, are we willing, like Nathan and Bathsheba, to inform those in authority? Remember, they go and they tell David who's the proper authority so he can take action. So are we willing, like Nathan and Bathsheba, to inform those in authority when there is something seriously wrong going on? And fourth and finally, is simply to give thanks that when it looks like politics and the world are just a mess, that the Lord God is still working out his kingdom purposes. When it looks like politics and the world are a mess, then and now, the Lord God is still working out his kingdom purposes. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that in the midst of what looks like political turmoil 3,000 years ago and now, that you are working out your eternal purposes. We rest in the truth that as empires rise and fall, you are building your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We long for that day when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ who will reign forever and ever. We also praise you as a God who is always faithful. You were faithful in your promise to David and you are faithful in all your promises to us today. Great is your faithfulness through Jesus. Amen.